Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Before we get into today's topic, the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus, I'm very excited to show to all of you. I have some brief announcements to make about the show. I recently started a new job and am beginning the process of an intensive 12-week-long training period. Because of the new job and the restrictions that it places on my time, as well as the intensity of work required to complete this training period, I'm somewhat limited in terms of the availability I have to schedule interviews and the capacity that I have to handle uh, all the work that goes into booking guests as well as doing prior research ahead of such interviews. That being said, I do plan on continuing to do interviews throughout this process, as well as doing interviews, especially once this training period is over. So don't worry, there will be more interviews. But for right now, I'm going to continue putting out shows that are uh, more topic-focused and singularly set uh, episodes with uh, a key thinker in mind or a key idea. And these will be solo episodes. So it's a new experiment for me. I've released a handful of solo episodes in the past on this show on various topics, from color revolutions to, you know, the ones who walk away from Omelas, uh, as well as others. And so I hope you've enjoyed those episodes, and I hope you'll enjoy the episodes that I have coming down the line. There will be a few more interviews that will scatter that will be scattered throughout the next few months. So I'm not going to discontinue doing interviews entirely. I just wanted to let you know that if there seems to be a gap or you're curious about the direction of the show, I do plan on resuming the regular schedule uh, of interviews as soon as this intensive training period is over. Thank you for your patience, and I hope to continue bringing you guys great content long into the future. All right, on to our main topic. Heraclitus stands alone among pre-Socratic philosophers. Contradictory, riddlesome, and enigmatic, he remains one of the most influential, yet least well-understood figures in Western philosophy. Born to a noble family in Ephesus, a city in Ionia, Greek Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, supposedly he passed on a kingship, awarding it instead to his brother to pursue life as a roaming philosopher. He was self-taught, Heraclitus is not associated with any of the prominent schools of philosophy known to us from the time, and is regarded as an independent thinker and misanthrope, one who looked to break away from the orthodoxies that pervaded his day. He drew influence from Anaximander, Thales, and others, was critical of Pythagoras, and was most notably influential on Cratylus, who brought his philosophy to Athens, where it was introduced to Plato. Aristotle viewed Heraclitus as contradicting the law of non-contradiction and regarded his unusual style of obscurantist, pithy, and ambiguous assertions as incoherent. Regardless, he proved influential not only to the Stoics, but also to nearly all of Western philosophy that followed. 
Whenever you hear of the life of Heraclitus, they will say we don't know much on the account of his life due to the sparse remaining fragments of his writings and suspiciousness of the stories passed down from later writers or sayings attributed that may be imposed or fabricated altogether. Most of what we know comes from a single source, Diogenes Laertius and his lives. In his lifetime, Heraclitus produced what one book, which was stored in the great temple of Artemis at Ephesus and has since been lost to time. This work was supposedly tripartly divided into sections on cosmology, politics, and theology. The book was so influential in its time that despite there being only one original copy available to whoever ventured to seek it out, it spawned a legion of followers known as the Heraclitians. What remains of his life's work comes down to us in fragments, 129, which constitute the perplexing, paradoxical, playful, and somewhat sardonic philosophy of the weeping philosopher. A sampling of the fragments will constitute our main subject today. In true Heraclitian fashion, I will expound upon selected fragments and give but my interpretation of what might be meant. Some have decided in other readings to choose passages at random, employing random number generators for the task, a method which I find to be trivializing to both Heraclitus and the student of Heraclitus. The philosopher himself encouraged what we might recognize as stoic virtues of courage, rectitude, and an overall anti-plebeian, even aristocratic, orientation. Therefore, it is prudent to exercise one's capacity for discernment in selecting from his works. To do otherwise is to treat him not as a philosopher, but as an archaic curiosity, observed voyeuristically in the zoo of ancient ideas. Core Heraclitian principles, the unity of opposites, the theory of flux, the primordial flame in all things in which was there in the beginning, will make themselves known as we go along. It is worth noting that a not insignificant portion of the meaning that would be passed down in writing, even discounting our lack of original volume, may be lost in translation, as many of his sayings and espousing involved semantic and rhetorical wordplay, but neither I nor most of you read ancient Greek. If you find my interpretations wanting, I'd encourage you to posit your own. There are only 129 fragments, most of which are quite brief, so those of you looking to see for yourself what Heraclitus was all about can easily work through them in under an hour to gain familiarity and even seek out additional translations, footnotes, and interpretations to complement the ones provided here. In keeping cognizant of the principle of flux, I expect my own understanding to change going forward after all, you can't cross the same fragment twice. Okay, let's get started. I will introduce each fragment by its number, read off the translation before me, make any additional comments or caveats with regard to footnotes or otherwise, and then give a brief summary or interpretation, my own personal spin on things. I have selected from the entire corpus 18 fragments. I chose the number 18 because it's divisible by 3, 6, and 9. Fragment number 1. Though this word, the original word for word here is logos, it's important to keep in mind. Though this logos is true evermore, yet men are unable to understand it when they hear it for the first time as before they have heard it at all. For though all things come to pass in accordance with this word, 
Men seem as if they had no experience of them. When they make trial of words and deeds, such as I set forth, dividing each thing according to its kind, and showing how it truly is. But other men know not what they are doing when awake, even as they forget what they do in sleep. So this is the first fragment of the series. It is a famous fragment in itself. It's quoted a lot. You may uh, even recognize the phrasing here, uh, that men know not what they are doing when awake, even as they forget what they do in sleep. Um, I think one crucial thing that uh, I want to just note on this very first one here is the use of the word logos in place of the word were. Of course, logos uh, means the word, but it also means a number of other things. So the logos is the word, but it is also reason. It is also the opinion. It is also the account. It is also the discourse. So logos is a very deep word. It has multiple meanings, uh, and there are multiple interpretations for logos. Uh, in not only this fragment here, but also uh, where it appears in other fragments. Uh, one thing that I would like to say about this is that Heraclitus has been accused of being a monist uh, with believing that the world is, uh, is made up of only fire, but he also refers a lot to uh, you know, the, the omnipresence of the one or the unity in all things. Uh, and, and, of course, he's using the word in, in this statement here uh, in a similar fashion as well. And so it's not clear if all of those things, the one, the logos, and fire are, are, are one and the same, or if they are uh, you know, distinct in themselves. But I think what's important here is that uh, there is this kind of uh, slumber that Heraclitus views most people, uh, you know, most men in, in, in this situation here, to be in almost all the time. And there's a sort of way in which they are kind of willfully blind to the world that's in front of them. They do not see things properly when they are awake. They forget uh, even in sleep. Uh, there's even references to them being, you know, sort of in a state of sleep while they're awake. Uh, that's that's a, a very common theme and uh, something that we may encounter in later, later passages. But this is fragment number one. Uh, and again, that's though, the, though this word is true evermore, Yet men are unable to understand it when they hear it for the first time as before they have heard it at all. Okay, so whatever the word is, whatever the logos is here, it's true for all time. And yet men are unable to understand it. There's something that they're missing about the fundamental nature of reality that is primordial, that precedes man and will last after him. And yet for some reason there's a kind of obliviousness to the nature of of the word for though all things come to pass in accordance with this word men seem as if they had no experience of them when they make trial of words and deeds such as i set forth dividing each thing according to its kind and showing how it truly is but other men know not what they are doing when awake even as they forget what they do in sleep fragment number two so we're not going to go in order throughout this entire thing. Obviously, I'm not just doing the first 18 fragments. We're just happening to do the first and second fragment that I've selected, and they are in order. Fragment number two. So we must follow the common, yet though my word, logos again here, is common, the many lives, the many live as if they had a wisdom of their own. Okay, so I think you can see a little bit how this fragment ties into the previous fragment. By the way, I would like to note that the 
the, the fragment number one has been confirmed to be the first fragment uh, by multiple accounts. So the fragment number one is very, very famous. Um, so, we must follow the common, yet though my word is common, the many live as if they had a wisdom of their own. Okay, so this has to do with the many, uh, you know, choosing to feel as if their particular experience, their, uh, you know, wisdom of their own is separate from, again, you know, the unity of all things, from the commonality that's between them. Okay? He says, though, though my word is common, the many live as if they had a wisdom of their own. That is, what he's saying here is common to all men, to all people in all times, and it must be followed. So we must follow the common, right? Because if there's something that we all have in common, then it's impossible for us to live another way that is contrary to that. And yet we have this tendency in all of us to assume that we are individual, that we are somehow different, that there's something exceptional about us. And while we do have minor differences between us, uh, you know, what constitutes the human experience, what allows us to all say that we share something called being human is what is common between us all, right? And Heraclitus here is actually putting himself forward as someone who's able to see through that which is common, yet though my word is common, he can give you something that is shared by all of us. And therefore, it is arrogant for some to think, particularly the many in this case, that their experience, their wisdom, their situation is somehow separate from this unity of all things that Heraclitus is putting forward. All right, fragment number 10. Couples are things whole and things not whole. What is drawn together and what is drawn asunder, the harmonious and the discordant. The one is made up of all things, and all things issue from the one. Okay, I really like this one because it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a riddle, right? Couples are things whole and things not whole, right? That is, it's impossible to separate a coupling, right, into its constituent parts, because what is drawn together and what is drawn asunder the harmonious and the discordant, right? So this is the unity of opposites that I talked about earlier, right? There's a sort of coupling, uh, a kind of symmetry that goes through the nature of things in which uh, two things can be said to be opposites. They can said to be, uh, you know, one can be said, said to be set apart from another, and yet in some sense they are all part of the same whole, right? And because they all make up the, the, you know, the one is made up of all things and all things issue from the one. This again is a reference to the one that I was talking about earlier. Uh, in some sense, the, there's kind of an illusion, the illusion of things being different, right? Things being truly differentiated in a, in a metaphysical sense. Uh, and this ties back into the, you know, the previous fragment actually quite nicely. Uh, in, in the previous situation, it was the men who view themselves as different from the other humans. Uh, in this one, he's saying that uh, in general, right, he's making a more more general claim here. Couples are things whole and things not whole, okay? And so now we're getting a little bit into the contradictory elements of his philosophy and the way in which he pairs things together uh, in non-intuitive and uh, in very interesting ways to show that even though there are opposites, they're sort of all part one in the same thing. They're all 
drawn from the same cloth. Fragment number 12. You cannot step twice into the same rivers, for fresh waters are ever flowing in upon you. Okay, so some of you may recognize this fragment. I'm sure there are many, many other paraphrases and references that have been made to it uh, in other other mediums in the past. You probably are are you know getting a little bit of a light in your brain right now, hearing that fragment and realizing that it comes from Heraclitus. But yes, you cannot step in, into the same river twice, for fresh waters are ever flowing in upon you. Uh, this has many interpretations that people have decided to give. Uh, I've heard ones where uh, you know some people are referring to the subject in this case uh, as being um, you know not even the river itself, but actually. The, the one who is stepping into the river, right? That is that uh, you stepping into a river for the second time are actually different than you were when you stepped into that river uh, the first time. Uh, and of course, obviously, the river itself is ever flowing, right? And so we're going to get into, um, this is the, the first one that's really hinting uh, very definitively at his idea of flux, right? Sort of sort of a, a, a process that's sort of part of, um, part of existence in general is that uh, things are constantly changing, that change is all the time. And so the river that you're stepping in is still the same river the second time that you jump in. But of course, it's not the same because the waters that are uh, that are flowing through are not the same waters as they were previously. The river has changed, and yet in all that change, it somehow stays the same. Some have even argued that the definition of the river being the same is the fact that it's changing, because if it wasn't changing, it would not be a river. Um, and so... Uh, that's a, a, a nice little famous fragment that I wanted to pull for you all and um, just uh, talk a little bit about that one. I think there's a, a much more to say on it, uh, but let's move on to the next one. Fragment 21. All the things we see when awake are death, even as all we see in slumber are sleep. All right, so this is reminiscent of the first fragment we read. All the things we see when awake are death, even as all we see in slumber are sleep. Um, how do you want to take this one is, uh, is really up to you. What does it mean to say all the things that we see when awake are death? Uh, you know, maybe perhaps it means that we're really only awake when we're asleep and that actually being awake is a kind of death, right? But then, of course, when we're sleeping, he says, even as all we see in slumber are sleep. Okay, so when we're in slumber, we're seeing sleep. And when we're awake, we're seeing death. What does that mean exactly? Well, maybe it means that we're never really alive. Or maybe, perhaps, we're alive when we're asleep. Maybe there's some sort of alternate world that we're accessing while we're asleep, perhaps while we're dreaming. That is the real world. That is sort of a, a different uh, ulterior reality that is, in some sense, more real than the, 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 the world that we see during our waking hours. I'm not exactly sure what to make of this one. All the things we see when awake are death. Maybe it's because all the things that we see when awake are decaying. Or maybe it's because while we're awake, we are aware of our impending death. We're aware of the inevitability of our death and the inescapable mortality that we're trapped in. Whereas when we're in slumber, we actually have a chance to forget. There's a kind of forgetfulness that goes along with sleep that we are cursed to remember once we wake up. Fragment number 25. Greater deaths win greater portions. Okay, so I really like this one because 
This is, uh, this is, you know, hinting at the heroic virtues that I referenced in the introduction to this. Greater deaths win greater portions, right? That is, your death is not just, you know, kind of slinking away and going quietly into that, into that good night, right? Do not go quietly into that good night. No, you should have a glorious death. It should be a glorious, wonderful death. And in fact, it should be, it should be tragic, it should be, uh, it should be, uh, you know, the the highlight, the pinnacle of your life, should be your death. Greater deaths win greater portions. Okay, so uh, that may mean that you have to live, you know, a glorious life ahead of your death, in order to, uh, in order to have a have a greater death. What exactly a greater death means is not entirely clear, but he's saying that greater deaths win greater portions. Now, interestingly enough. Those portions aren't going to be enjoyed by you after you die. Uh, this is something that I think Western culture, particularly in its manifestations, uh, you know, today, is really missing a lot. Right? We we don't really tend to think a lot about our legacy, about what's going to happen, uh, you know, and the impact that we might have on the world, on other people once we're dead. We tend to think that, especially here in America. Uh, you know, the purpose of life is to sort of enjoy it as much as you can, get as much as you can, do as much as you can while you're still alive, and then sort of leave everything, <clears throat> leave all your chips on the table, right? Go out and, uh, you know, try to just spend all your money, try to just, you know, have as many experiences as possible, and not worry too much about uh, what's going to happen when you're dead, because uh, you'll be dead. You're not really going to enjoy it. But he's saying that greater deaths win greater portions. Now, that could mean greater portions in the afterlife, or it could mean uh, greater portions in terms of the reverence for you, in terms of the, um, you know, the award that's put on your name once you're gone. Of course, most of us won't be remembered, but Heraclitus himself is still remembered to this day. Um, now, I don't know exactly how he died, but greater deaths win greater portions. So, it could be could be an impetus i'm sorry not an impetus but um, an exhortation to die a glorious heroic death or it could be a hint at some kind of reward in the afterlife that's awaiting us next fragment fragment 29 or even the best of them choose one thing above all others immortal glory among mortals while most of them are gutted like beasts. Okay, so this fragment is just totally epic. Uh, it ties into the previous fragment and maybe gives us a little bit more context into what he might mean by greater deaths with greater portions. For even the best among them choose one thing above all others, immortal glory among mortals, while most of them are glutted like beasts. Okay, so you're going to sacrifice one thing for everything. And that everything is immortal glory, right? You're going to choose one thing above all else. Immortal glory among mortals. And don't be glutted like a beast, right? Don't die as some sort of, you know, domesticated, gluttonous, ridiculous farm animal who just sort of disappears and, and, and returns to their previous state of, of un unvital matter rather than being remembered, right? Immortal glory among mortals. 
think of who we remember. Think of who hundreds or even thousands of years later people are still talking about. The best of them choose one thing above all others. 30. This world, which is the same for all, no one of gods or men has made, but it was ever is now and ever shall be an ever-living fire, with measures of its kindling and measures going out. Okay, so this is hinting a little bit at his cosmology, right? This world, which is the same for all, no one of gods or man has made. So he's doing something quite radical here. He's claiming that there's no god or man as the creator. So the world is not something that we imagine and create in our heads. Neither is it something that's created by a god. But it's sort of an omnipresent entity, a kind of flow, right? And it ever shall be an ever-living fire with measures of its kindling and measures going out, right? So this is the flux of all things. This is why he gets called a monist because of the notion that everything is made of fire. And I don't think he means this quite literally. I think the fire here is actually metaphorical, I will venture to say. And that there's a sort of ever-living flame, the ever-living flame, right? The life in all things, the, the going in and out of all things, uh, with things of matter trans- transformations from matter into into other matter, right? That's what's happening in a, inside of a fire, which is the same for all. No one of gods or men has made, but it was, ever, is now, and ever shall be. So this is a world that also doesn't end, right? There's no beginning, there's no end. It's an all-encompassing, uh, eternal flame that just sort of goes on for all of time in all directions and it has measures of its kindling and measures going out number 41 wisdom is one thing wisdom is one thing it is to know the thought by which all things are steered through all things okay so let's tackle this one Starting off, wisdom is one thing, right? So, again, we're tying in this concept that all of the world is, in some sense, one thing. All of the wisdom of men, going back to one of our previous fragments, is one thing. There's one thing that constitutes wisdom, right? It's not, there's not a multiplicity of wisdoms, right? It's to know the thought by which all things are steered through all things. Now, I've had a hard time interpreting this statement. It is to know the thought by which all things are steered through all things. So all things steered through all things. Okay, so first of all, there is the aspect of knowing, right? So part of wisdom is to know. Right? So let, let's, let's put that one out first. The thought by which all things are steered through all things. Okay, so what exactly that means? Well, I'll, I'll put forward one interpretation. One interpretation of the thought by which all things are steered through all things is that wisdom is a kind of understanding of simplicity, right? And we've seen this so far in the fragments that we've reviewed. There's a very uh, simplistic bent that Heraclitus has in, in the sayings that he's making, claiming, you know, in the unity of opposites, the oneness of all things, the world is 
you know, eternal and the eternal flame just goes on and on forever. It always was, it always will be. And so this is the one thought, right? To know the thought by which all things are steered through, steered through all things. And so there's a, there's a sense in which, again, going back to movement and everlasting change and uh, sort of a process. The thought by which all things are steered through all things. So again, uh, the unity of opposites is coming into play here. There's a sense in which all things in in turn become all other things. And even these things that we, we differentiate as humans as being different are in some sense all part of the same thing. And this for Heraclitus is a definition of wisdom. So wisdom is one thing. 51. Men do not know how what is at variance agrees with itself. It is an attunement of opposite tensions, like that of a bow and the lyre. Again, we have the unity of opposites coming in here. Men do not know how what is at variance agrees with itself. Okay, so this is slightly different than the way that he's phrased similar statements that we've read so far. Right? They do not know that what is at variance agrees with itself. So there's a kind of uh, reflection of the self, right, in the opposite, right? They say, you know, the, 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 the shadow proves the sunshine, right? The dark cannot exist without the light. And so in a sense, uh, what is at variance agrees with itself, right? It is an attunement of the opposite tensions, like that of the bow and the lyre. Now, there have been different interpretations that I've heard of, um, of, of the bow and the lyre component here. Uh, the one that I've uh, heard that seems convincing to me is that the bow and the lyre are shaped very differently, but they, op- they operate, um, I'm sorry, they're shaped the same, but they operate uh, very differently. One makes music, the other one is for uh, shooting arrows. Uh, I've also heard that the bow represents uh, death and the lyre represents life. And so, uh, even though they are at variance, they sort of agree with themselves because they take the same shape, the same general form. Fragment number 53. War is the father of all and the king of all, and some he has made gods and some men, some bond and some free. Okay, war is the father of all. I mean, that's an aggressive statement, right? It's like saying Mars is the father of all, you know, the god Mars. Um what, what to make of that exactly? Well, this is why earlier I said that I think the fire is really a metaphor, right? When we think of fire, we also think of war. We associate war with, with, with fire, with, with the tension, with the burning, with the destruction. And so to say that war is the father of all and the king of all means that there's this kind of fighting, there's this kind of eternal battling that's going on in the universe, right? And through the struggle, right, through... The, 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 the fighting and the overcoming and the death and the destruction and the rebirth, right? Some he has made gods and some men, some bond and some free. And so uh, this is actually a, somewhat a Darwinian statement in a sense uh, in that, you know, it, it's the competition, the struggle for life. And uh, this is what ends up determining, you know, the, the speciation, the differentiation among, uh, among types, among creatures, living things. And uh, it puts them in, into different places, right? Their success or failure leads them 
to be stationed differently or to die out altogether, right? Make some bond and some free. War is the father of all. They say that nature is red in tooth and claw. So I'll leave you with that. Fragment number 65. Fire is want and surfeit. So a really short fragment here. I've only got about five five English words here in this uh, in this translation of fragment number 65. Fire is want and surfeit. So remember, we've already said that fire is the essence of the world, right? Is the primordial substance that constitutes all things, right? The world is an ever ever <clears throat> ever more flame. So what does it mean that fire is want and surfeit? Well, want and surfeit are opposites here, right? So again, we're getting this uh, interesting wordplay with the unity of opposites, right? To want is to be in scarcity, and to be surfeit is to uh, be in abundance. And so what does it mean that fire is want and surfeit? Well, again, going back to the unity of opposites, what does fire do? Well, fire, uh, fire destroys life, but it also breathes life into new things. At least for human beings, life is not possible without fire um and so it's just really interesting here that fire is uh is want and surfeit and uh and 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 what does it want well it wants fuel it wants the energy of the substances and the things around it that it's consuming and what about the surfeit well the surfeit part is that fire spreads fire grows fire seems to take on a life of its own and desire to expand itself, right? And it's, it's it's always pulling in more things, more fuel, more oxygen, and trying to sort of establish itself in a greater domain. But it's also it's also want, right? So fire is want and surfeit. It's sucking things in, it's spreading, it's putting things out. It can be really good for us or it can be terrible for us. Fire is want and surfeit. 72. They are estranged from that which they have most constant intercourse. Okay, so I'm guessing intercourse here does not mean exclusively sexual intercourse, though it could mean that also. They are estranged from that which they have most constant intercourse. Okay, so this is interesting because he's talking about familiarity, right? That which which you have most constant intercourse with is that which is familiar. And in some sense, there's a kind of blindness that comes along with familiarity. Uh, I know for, for myself, at least, I tend to be a somewhat, um, a somewhat uh, disorganized person uh, in some aspects of my life. And so what that means is that, uh, you know, for example, when, I'm, when, I, when, I, when I notice that my room has gotten in too much disarray, I, I notice that I have to tidy it up. And well, why did I allow it to get into that much disarray in the first place? Well, is it just because uh, I don't care about the mess or I don't mind uh, living, you know, in a disorganized way? Well, some of that is that. But uh, the main thing is that over time, what happens is I just become blind. I literally don't see the mess. I literally don't see the disorganization because that which I've become familiar with, which I have most constant intercourse, becomes estranged from me. In some sense, it becomes something that's uh, not not visible to me. It becomes something that uh, maybe you don't even understand, right? If you think of estrangement in uh, in all of its possible meanings, 
estrangement can also mean uh, not only distance from, but also uh, a kind of uh, a kind of misunderstanding, right? And so maybe because you see something, you encounter something, right? Intercourse uh, all the time, constantly, most constant. Um, you, in some sense, neglect to give it proper attention, right? To understand it uh, carefully. And in fact, maybe, especially if it's changing, as we, we, we have already established, the nature of all things is change. Then maybe you would even assume that you had been aware of those changes, but subtle changes happening over and over again, iterating over time, are often unnoticed. And so there's a kind of estrangement that can happen between the thing that you think you're the most familiarity with. Familiar, in this sense, would actually be um, a slight misdirection. All right, fragment number 80. We must know that war is common to all, and strife is justice, and that all things come into being and pass away through strife. Okay, so again, we talked about war, we talked about fire, we talked about war being the father of all things. Now he's saying that we must know that war is common to all. And strife is justice. And that all things come into being and pass away through strife. Now, here he's saying strife is justice. I think a lot of people would, you know, that would definitely irk them the wrong way to give a definition of uh, strife is justice. An identity like that. Um, but, in some sense, the, uh, the creation of justice, right, is a reciprocal relationship. Right? And so there has to be a kind of um, a kind of adversarial nature to any conception of justice that we might have in order for justice to be reciprocal, right? And so when he says that war is common to all and strife is justice, I think you can interpret that very cynically in a sort of a Hobbesian sense, right? That life is short, brutish, and you know all, all the rest. Or, or you can just sort of interpret it, you know, again as I was saying earlier. In a more uh, in a more evolutionary or Darwinian sense, in that there's sort of this necessary uh, this necessary clashing, this necessary um, you know fighting and working out of things that is part of how we maintain balance in the world, right? And that all things come and pass come into being and pass away through strife, right? So again, there's a kind of um, the the nature of life is a kind of striving, not strifing, striving. Uh, to to become something, to become what one is, to establish territory, to move forward, to become bigger, to become greater, and yet uh, in the end, all that's all, all that you are is going to pass away, right? And so there's a kind of tragic tragedy to life, which is that uh, there's a kind of strife that's inherent to it, and uh, and and it gives life to new life, and it also takes it away. Fragment number 93. The Lord, who is the oracle at Delphi, neither utters nor hides his meaning, but shows it by a sign. Okay, so I chose this one because it's a little bit mysterious. First of all, he's referring to the Lord here, which in the previous fragments that I've selected, and I think in all the previous fragments uh, that there are, he does not mention the Lord. He's usually talking about the One, or as I said earlier, the Logos, or even fire, or in some cases, war itself, right? But here he's saying the Lord is the oracle at Delphi. So there's a very specific reference there to the oracle at Delphi. Neither utters 
nor hides his meaning, but shows it by a sign. Okay, so this is interesting because um, what he's saying is that whatever it is that is uh, that is in charge of these things, that is in charge of this place, right? That's sort of sending its messages. You know, the Oracle of Delphi was receiving messages from somewhere, somewhere outside the normal realm of consciousness. He's saying that the Lord neither utters nor hides his meaning, right? So the meaning is not made explicit, or at least it's not made explicit through the word. It's not made explicit through the logos, but it shows it by a sign. It's interesting here that he's saying that it shows that, that, that the word, or sorry, that uh, <clears throat> the meaning is shown by a sign uh, because uh, one of the ways in which logos has been transformed into our uh, into our modern culture into our lexicon is through the word logo right logos logos and logos are literally the same word uh, spelled the same and what is a logo well a logo is a sign and it represents something um, so I really just included this one because it makes references to the Oracle at Delphi, uh, and I was I was very excited about that. And I also think the fact that he refers to the Lord here is quite interesting as well. Um, but that's what I have to say for fragment number 93. I'll let you think on that for a while. 102. To God, all things are fair and good and right, but men hold some things wrong and some right. All right, so we've got Lord in the previous one. We've got God in this one. Uh, it, it may be safe to say that he's some kind of a, a deist of some sort. Of course, he's also said that the whole world is part of one, that it's all, all a flame, that war. So maybe, maybe God is war. Maybe God is the flame. All things are fair and good and right. So again, his notion of justice is not a prescriptive one it's not saying that oh we're going to establish justice by uh you know by uh some sort of meek notion of uh of helping the weak or of um uh you know uh, of harming the strong he's saying that all things are fair and good and right but men hold some things wrong and some right okay so this is actually disputing the concept of justice itself despite saying that it is the men who hold that some things are wrong and some are right. Uh, this reminds me actually a little bit about Nietzsche's characterization of nature. He characterizes nature as being uh, basically uh, eminently indifferent to you know, everything about, about mankind, to the suffering, to you know, the good things. And here, here Clives is saying, uh, to God, all things are fair and good and right. So that is, what is, is what must be. And what must be therefore must be good and right right so in, in some sense what is good and what is right are identical with what is and is only us you know the men who choose to uh contrive distinctions between right and wrong as if we are the ones who can dictate nature and as if uh it's not the other way around so that's uh fragment 102 all right and our last one on the list here fragment 112 Self-control is the highest virtue, and wisdom is to speak truth and consciously to act according to nature. I'm going to repeat that. Self-control is the highest virtue, 
And wisdom is to speak truth and consciously to act according to nature. So I told you in the introduction here that he was very influential on the Stoics. I think the previous fragment, as well as this one especially, uh, have uh, you can see the influence on the Stoics that he might have had here. He's saying here that, you know, wisdom, his definition of wisdom here is to speak truth and consciously to act according to nature. Right? So don't act any differently than what is in your nature to be and also to speak the truth. So this is actually a, a, an unusual moment where he's giving a, a very clear moral um, a, a very clear moral dictum to us. Right? Wisdom is to speak truth. That is, do not speak falsely. Right? He's also saying here that the highest virtue, that is, the, 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 out of all the virtues, the one that's at the top of our hierarchy of virtues is self-control. And again, this is a, this is a very stoic notion. This idea that self-control is the highest virtue. So having having eminent sovereignty over oneself, what one does, how one conducts oneself, how one reacts to things, or rather acts in spite of things, is, he's saying, the highest virtue. And wisdom is to speak truth and consciously to act according to nature. So this has been a brief introduction to Heraclitus for you all. Again, these 18 fragments are not nearly comprehensive, giving you an understanding of all of Heraclitus's various sayings and interesting observations and assertions about the world. I would encourage all of you to go and discover his fragments for yourself, to read through them if this talk has been interesting. These ones I selected are just some of the few that I felt might be interesting for you to hear might have some valuable insights and give you a good brief idea about what Heraclitus is all about. I'm going to leave you with this last one, fragment 112. Self-control is the highest virtue and wisdom is to speak truth and consciously to act according to nature. Thank you all for listening and I'll see you next time.